0: When you pay your mortgage, it's recognized as a debt obligation. And then you pay down the 30-year mortgage, for an example, and then that contributes towards your credit score. And, hey, it's great credit, and everyone is excited. But folks that pay rent, predominantly low to medium-income people, do not get credit for paying the same payment to have a shelter. So we decided to devise, inspired by legislation already, established in the United States. It's based on a simple premise. When you pay your rent, you should also get the credit for someone that also pays their mortgage. Simple.
1: Welcome to the Phil with Forbes 30 podcast. This is Phil Michaels, Forbes 30 under 30 entrepreneur and performance coach. Every year, Forbes names the top 30 entrepreneurs, leaders, and stars in the world. And each week, I bring you one of them to help you level up in your life and business. From celebrities like LeBron James to Kylie Jenner and Cardi B, to entrepreneurs with companies like DoorDash, Instagram, and YouTube, you're sure to learn from the list. Thanks for spending time with me today. Now it's time to level up. Level up. Welcome to Fill with Forbes 30 Podcast. Today, we have very special guests. Yes, two. The co-founders of Isusu, Abby and Samir, which are both also the co-CEOs. Isusu helps individuals save money and build credit. Their rent reporting platform captures rental payment data and reports it to the credit bureaus to boost credit scores. The company's mission is to provide financial solutions that pave a permanent bridge to financial access and inclusion. Abby and his work have been recognized in the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, Fortune Magazine, Teen Vogue, Vice, Black Enterprise, Cheddar, and Abby graduated magna cum laude from the University of Minnesota and holds a Master's of Public Administration degree from NYU. Moving on to his co CEO and co founder, Samir. Samir's work has been featured in the Wall Street Journal. Financial Times, USA Today, Fortune Vice, Black Enterprise, and he was also named to the 2020 Forbes 30 Under 30 list. He graduated from NYU. Please welcome both Abby and Samir. Welcome, such a pleasure having you both on the show.
0: Thanks a lot for having us, Phil. We're incredibly excited to share here today. Thanks, Phil. such a pleasure to be here with you.
1: My pleasure, my pleasure. And we've met back in, what was it, 16 originally 2015 with the Clinton global initiative then again in 2016 we were all lucky enough to be accepted to a social entrepreneurship fellowship uh, the global good fund and now we meet again because we've all been recognized by the Forbes 30 under 30 list we've traveled to South Africa t- together Washington DC I mean, Switzerland, we've been all over. This is, this is my squad right here. So I'm so excited I get to chat with you on a different level. Thanks for being here.
0: Absolutely, Phil. You know what they say, um, good people attract good people, and it takes a village to do what we're doing. So it's always a pleasure to just you know, travel the world around you, with you, and it's been an amazing joy.
1: Just the beginning, foundation of our relationship. And speaking of relationships, Uh, How did you two meet? Why don't we take me back to the moment when you two crossed paths and and then decided to work together?
2: Yeah, it's a great question, Phil. Uh, So Abby and I actually met in 2014 uh, before all of us convened for the Global Good Fund. And uh, we actually met at a Clinton Global Initiative conference in Arizona. At the time, we were working on different social ventures. I had recently co-founded Transformation. Abby had co-founded Clean Water for Everyone. And we just hit it off. We became good friends. You know, we realized that We shared common values, made intros for each other and just stayed in touch. The next year we ended up being roommates in Miami. And soon after that, we ended up founding a consulting business together called Abby Goyle and Associates still operates today for us to do fun projects with other people we love working with. And, you know, I think what we learned that was really important was one, we shared the same values and the same passion to serve our communities. And two, we realized that we had similar experiences, particularly when it came to the financial system of the United States. And we can dig a little bit more into that as this podcast goes on, but based on those shared values and whatnot, we decided to build Susu. And now, you know, a few years later, we're pretty much married. Abby and I have a seven year strong work husband relationship and we're still rocking and rolling.
1: A great relationship. One thing that I love about Samir and Abby is, is the relationship that they have. It's, it's admirable. Not many people can do the co-CEO thing and you guys pull it off and our best of friends, which is an amazing, amazing um, experience that you both get to share together. Take us back to when you found out about getting on the list. I know it's recent the 2020 list. Where were you when you found out you made the Forbes list?
0: Wow, that's a a very good question. So Samir and I were, you know, in South Africa, serendipitously, you were also on that trip, but it was before we all met. So we're at this hotel we usually go to, um, when we do our annual pilgrimage to South Africa. If you haven't been, it's arguably one of the most beautiful places in the world. So we went on this hike in one of the famous mountains in South Africa called Lion's Head difficult hike. It was our first time doing it, you know, going up and down. Took some amazing photos and particularly just reminiscing on our time, the hard work we've put in to get to where we are today. And which encompasses, you know, us being denied fundraising opportunities, um, a lot of no's and just reflecting on the year and thinking how, you know, far we've come and standing on the shoulders of many. So we hiked down, you know, enjoying the beautiful um, landscape of Cape Town, got back to the hotel and we got close to 200 messages. People congratulating us were like, wait, what broke? Did we break something or what happened right now? Because we're all this firefighting and trying to solve a particular problem. So we looked at all the text messages, it was just congratulations, congratulations. And we opened our email and got the official notification from Forbes. And that night was so amazing because 2019 was arguably one of the toughest years of our life. Our business was on the brink of, you know, going away, there were points whereby we didn't even have anything to eat and we were in a lot of debt. But our relationship as what we like to call each other, walk-hors-band relationship really led to cementing, um, you know, just such a tough year. And when we found out we were on the Forbes 30 under 30 list, it was just the icing on the cake.
1: It's validating. It makes you feel good. It's a huge accomplishment, a huge reward when you, especially when you know how serious Forbes takes the vetting process. They do their due diligence, their methodology is insane. They have a less than 4% acceptance rate, which is more selective than even Harvard. So it's, it's extremely difficult to get on the list and you guys made it. So that must've been such a proud moment. Who was the first people you shared it with?
2: Yeah, that's a great question, Phil. To be honest, I think, you know, when we first found out about the news, we were just overwhelmed with the amount of inbound. We didn't even know what we were being congratulated for. Just congratulations. I'm so proud of you. And we're just like, what are we talking about here? We're like not even in the United States right now. Uh, so I think to be Frank, the first thing Abby and I did was just take a step back and, you know, reflect, we stayed out at the hotel that night and just kind of talked about our journey and really, I think primarily shared that moment with each other. Um, and then the next day we kind of took on the world of like 3000 inbound messages and, you know, started talking to folks, um, ironically, like personally, I didn't even share it with like my family. I'm like very uncomfortable with that that sort of thing. My girlfriend actually ended up sharing it with my parents like three months later (laughs) and that's how they found out.
1: (laughs) That's awesome. And the fact that you happen to be together, the moment you found out, I mean, how serendipitous is that? It's amazing. So take us back to the very beginning where you're from, where you grew up, and eventually the path that ultimately led to you making it to the Forbes list and getting the success that you've gotten now.
0: Yeah, thanks a lot, Phil. You know, particularly for me, I grew up in the slums of Lagos, Nigeria. I lost my father when I was the age of two. My mother invested everything she could in in my education, even if she only had a high school degree. Um, Education, from my mother's perspective, was the most paramount investment you can have in any child's life. So she afforded my school fees to one of the most expensive institutions on the land. And then I had the opportunity to come to the United States, like every immigrant, to latch onto the American dream. Um, When we came to this country, um, we went to one of the biggest financial institutions to borrow money. But we were turned away because we didn't have a credit score. Um, and then we walked down the streets in Minneapolis um, to borrow money at over 400 interest rates from a predatory lender. My mother didn't waver. She sold majority of our jewelry so I could continue to get that in she believed, on, believed in, which is a good education. I went to the University of Minnesota. That's where I founded my first company, Clean Water for Everyone. Um, and then the data company when we came to um, New York University for graduate school. I say we because going to university or, co- or my graduate program isn't just about me. I stand on the shoulders of many that have sacrificed a lot in their lives to mm-hmm. make me be where I am today. So inspired by that experience and working in a whole bunch of corporate organizations like Goldman Sachs and PricewaterhouseCoopers and many more you've mentioned, um, Simia and I met and it was really based on a simple premise. We were like, look, We're learning a lot. We're making money working for this big corporation. But one thing was simple. We had a head for business, but a heart for the world. And the question Mm -hmm. was, how do we create a business that continues to move that idea forward? And one thing that was particularly um, a common denominator for both of us was the idea of financial exclusion. The idea that where you come from can determine where you end up. Your credit score can determine the kind of debt you're going to have access to in this country. That is not the fundamental fabric of what the United States is all about, and it sure isn't what anyone should have to go through in this, um, in this world. So inspired by that experience, and Samir will share it shortly, that's what made us find Isuzu. Based on a simple premise, regardless of where you come from, regardless of what your name is, regardless of your zip code, your financial identity, should not determine where you end up in life. I'll pass it to Samir to share a little bit about his background.
2: Thanks a lot, Abby. Thanks, Abby. And Phil for asking the question. You know, like Abby, I grew up in an immigrant family. And my family story begins in New Delhi, India. You know, that's my family been for generations. And my dad had this dream that we could come to America and build a better life for ourselves. So when um, my mother was pregnant with me, he and my father immigrated to America. And we thought we had made it. It was like America, land of the dreams, you know, there's opportunities for everyone. And on my father's first day here, he was mugged. And so our starting point in the system was no money, no credit score, and really nowhere to go. My dad didn't even know what a hamburger was. The first time he saw it, he was like, what is this thing? I don't even eat meat. What are we doing in this country? And so, you know, a lot of my upbringing was really just watching my parents work miracles so that we could have a fighting chance. And so, you know, I have the privilege of watching two people sacrifice everything so that I could have a shot to have an education, to grow up in America and do great things. Um, and the thought that I was left with, you know, parallel to Abby's is, you know, it shouldn't be so hard for people that give it their all every day to have a fighting chance. Now, at the time, I really didn't know what to make of any of that. Frankly, I just felt a little out of place, you know, cross-cultural kid growing up in America. So, uh, I had the privilege to go to school at New York university took on a crazy amount of debt. And, you know, that was a very worthwhile experience because I remember so clearly on my first day, I met this girl, uh, in my freshman year class. And I was like, what did you do this summer? And she was like, I got a grant to go study climate change on Mount Kilimanjaro. And I was like, what is that? Like, how is that even possible? I spent my summer landscaping, scraping by for like 10 bucks, you know, trying to do whatever. And, the value of going to NYU for me was really just expanding that mindset of what was possible in the world. And Mm -hmm. so throughout college, you know, I worked a bunch of different jobs just to make ends meet, but at the same time I developed this sense of possibility. And so founded my first business, which was Transfer Nation. We partner with corporate events around New York City, make sure extra food goes to shelters and soup kitchens. Um, And that was just the opportunity that I had to learn a lot about building businesses, both what to do, but probably more importantly, what not to do. Following that experience, you know, I spent some time at the United Nations, realized that bureaucracy really wasn't for me and that I needed to be a little bit more hands-on. Uh, and so I kind of decided to try the private sector. I had a lot of debt and I wanted to learn how business worked. And so, you know, I did a little tour of duty at Venture for America, but then accrued most of my experience at LinkedIn, uh, where I spent over three years, worked in, you know, three or four different cities with them and just learned a lot about being a good professional. And at that time, Abby and I, you know, we'd been friends for some time. And, you know, he already touched on kind of the impetus for us founding ASUSU, but we started building it in 2016. And when we saw some, you know, market validation, we quit our jobs in 2018 and launched full time and, you know, 2018 and 2019 were some of the most crazy times in our lives, like no one else will ever go through what Abby and I have gone through together from the creditors calling our families to, you know, Airbnb hacks to, you know, such a crazy journey, but we've been fortunate to make it through and have the opportunities that we do now.
1: That's amazing. I mean, talk about the sacrifice that, you know, uh, Abby's mother made and, and Samir, your parents made. It's amazing what parents will sacrifice for their own children to live a better life than maybe they were offered or afforded. And the fact that your greatest pains as kids became your greatest gifts to serve others. And I, I want to recognize that because I think so many people sometimes in the moment, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel like a gift at all. It feels like a traumatic pain. But ultimately, that what, that's what inspires you to do what you do in life. That becomes your purpose. And now because you had to go through maybe those financial troubles and not having a credit score, for example, with Abby, you now want to provide that for others. So This is a perfect transition. How does that actually work? So what do you guys actually do with Asusu to provide people like your mom to have a credit score? Tell me how the rent payment works with that.
0: Great question, Phil. So there's a bit of a background. Historically, in the United States, when you pay your mortgage, it's recognized as a debt obligation. And then you pay down the 30-year mortgage for an example, and then that contributes towards your credit score. And hey, it's great credit, and everyone is excited. But well, folks that pay rent, predominantly low to medium income people, do not get credit for paying the same payment to have a shelter. So we decided to devise, device inspired by legislation already established in the United States. is based on a simple premise. When you pay your rent, you should also get the credit for someone that also pays their mortgage. Simple. So we created an end-to-end system where we work with landlords, get your rental information, transform it in accordance with 4,200 rules and regulation in the United States. And after the transformation, we report it into the credit rating agencies. The big ones in the United States are Experian, Equifax, and TransUnion. And if you do that activity, the impact is really simple if you do not have a credit score we've established credit scores for people in the range of 620 which is considered a good credit score as high as 722 points right which is considered a very good credit score and just to tell you the importance of having a bad credit score if you have a poor credit score in the united states you can pay over a quarter million dollars in interest over your lifetime so really, improving people's credit scores will not only give them access to good products but help them have significant savings over the course of their lives
1: this is a genius it's such a no brainer it 's one of those ideas you're like why didn't I think that? People are getting credit for paying their mortgage why aren't they getting credit for paying their rent i mean I so you're making it easier for people to do that and How does, let's say a landlord is thinking, oh, this is a great idea, I wanna give back to my tenants. How do they get involved? How could they sign up for this?
2: Yeah, that's a great question, Phil. So interestingly enough, landlords are at the center of our go-to-market strategy because we found that to be the most effective way to reach as many tenants as possible. And one thing that's true about landlords is they might be wanting to give back to their tenants, but their number one responsibility is making their assets profitable. And so we needed to make sure that the platform we built was able to help them do that. So that way it's not just, this is your social responsibility, but this is actually good for your bottom line. So the way we do that is actually really simple. When tenants know that they will build credit for paying rent, they're incentivized to pay rent on time. And so according to our data, this drives on-time payments by about 25%, which directly goes to the landlord's net operating income. Our data is actually though quite conservative. TransUnion suggests that 70% of renters are more likely to pay on time with rent reporting, and 67% of renters will be more likely to choose a building with this as an amenity instead of one without it, which means that not only do you encourage good behavior in your building, but you keep good tenants and you attract great tenants, right? So now all of a sudden we're really speaking to the core of a landlord's business operating model, and we're always thinking of ways that we can do more for our landlords as well.
1: I love that it's not just this idea of altruism, like, oh, everyone's altruistic. They want to give back The social responsibility. You're actually putting it down on their bottom line. You're, you're using behavioral economics to incentivize both parties, the end user, the tenant, but also the landlord. I mean, you're, you're tapping into all stakeholders and you're giving more data to the credit bureaus. Genius. I love you it. You got it. <laughs> So, I mean, achieve, what's the biggest challenge right now? What's some of the obstacles you faced along this way to finding success? How did you get in the door?
0: Great question, Phil. So when we think about success, um, what differentiates a high growth startup um, from you know, a failing startup is all about three things. Number one, the people you hire. So as a small startup, you're competing with great Silicon Valley businesses, to get the best in class talent. So us, you know, with a small budget going after the best in class people was a little bit difficult at first, but we've been very fortunate to now hire a team of 20 trying to help us move the business forward. Number two is processes. There are a lot of rules and regulation. There are a lot of things we need to comply by because we're considered if um, an essential business in the financial services world. We see a lot of data. We need to make sure we're protecting people's data and our processes speaks to that. Because if you think about a landlord with over $50 billion in assets, they want to implement this service and they want to do the right thing, but they have more to lose because their reputation is at stake. Hence why at susu? we try as much as possible to ingrain this in everyone in our, of our um, people and then the customers we work with. We do not care about the 99% of things that go right We care about the 1% that can ruin our reputation. And that's the way we try to do business every day. The last thing is technology. When you're building a highly scalable business, a lot of capital needs to go into building a strong, agile and responsible technology. It takes capital to do that. It takes a lot of smart people and the right processes. So now we're investing a lot of money into that to make sure that's, you know, very solid and we can go to the market stronger. The challenge is when you do those baseline things, a little bit less, but the idea now means you need to make it work and actually add value for the landlords. Relationships matter a lot in the industry. The real estate market is very small and encompasses very few stakeholders. So you need to try as much as possible. In our own case, what we did was make sure we add value And we have a strategy called land and expand so we do business with a landlord um, with a portion of their portfolio and then when we do well they're expanding with us and we continue to grow together so those are the core prerequisites in terms of people process and technology and then from a go to market perspective we really focus on showing our value and then expanding across the network
1: i was just going to ask you how do you actually get in touch with them How are you building these relationships?
2: That's a great question, Phil. So, you know, this is actually what Abby and I I love doing more than anything is focusing on the people of the business, right? And so, you know, it's funny because a lot of these people aren't treated really well in their day-to-day lives, right? Tenants are yelling at them. Their stakeholders are kind of mean. You know, their LPs are banging on their doors, (laughs) right? And what Abby and I do first and foremost is just treat everyone with like respect and dignity. Every single person, every outreach, every communication, we just make them feel like a million dollars. So that's like the baseline. And then on top of that, we kind of go out of our way to make their jobs as easy as possible. One of the things we often say in our sales meetings is just, you will do no work. Any work that you have to do, tell us and we will do it instead of you because every landlord has way too many things on their plate to actually do something. And so if we're causing a lot of extra work for them, we might get a one-time contract, but we won't renew that contract. And the third thing, and you know, this kind of speaks to a little bit of how we've responded to COVID-19 specifically, is showing up for people when you know, things are tough. And the way we've done that in this situation is we built what we call our rent relief fund, where we've raised philanthropic capital to help renters who can no longer make rent because of COVID-19. And the thinking behind that is this. Firstly, when we looked across our ecosystem, we saw that 65% of renters were not going to be able to make their financial obligations at the same time, that's terrible for our landlords. They want to support tenants through this time, but at the end of the day, they still have bills to pay. They still have a property to run. And so Abby and I put our heads together to think, how can we show up for our constituents at this time and do something good for the world? And so we raised this fund. And what we're doing is if tenants apply for rent relief, we'll send that capital to the landlord so that they can make their net operating income bills, but then tenants get rent relief so that they're not hung out to dry or, even worse, evicted because the landlord really has no other choice. And so what we always think about is people remember how you make them feel. And so in these times, how can we show up to do something really meaningful for the people we work with, both landlords and tenants?
1: I love that. Uh, Talk about playing offense during this time of COVID. You guys are directly supporting those that need it most. And where do listeners go to find out more about that, whether they're a tenant or a landlord?
0: Um, listeners can go to www.asusurentrelief.com um, and find out more information, either to sign up to get Rent Relief or just you know, cheap in a little bit so someone can keep a roof over their head.
1: Perfect. And we'll share that link in the show notes for you, those that are listening. And we talked a little bit about success for what to do as a startup. We talked about a go-to-market strategy. But what about you as individuals? What was the single most important personal attribute that got you to where you
0: are today? That's a good question. Um, I would say the single most attribute that you know got me where I am today is faith. Um, faith coupled with perseverance. You know, if you think about my story and we use stats here or math to think about where someone like me would end up, you—it's not going to be what we're talking about today. Um, you know, I grew up in the slums of Lagos, Nigeria. Was written off, even including some of my family members have said you won't make it in life. But the story I like to talk about is against all odds, right? My life is not about odds; it's just about unwavering faith. In the moments mm-hmm. where something seemed impossible, right, just to have that uncontrollable faith, unapologetically approaching situations and saying, "Look." I don't have an idea how things are going to work out, but if we make calculated risk and put hard work and persevere, everything is possible. Nothing is impossible if you do the work and believe, right, against the calculations of humankind, you can get to wherever you want to get to. That's what got me here. I stand on the shoulders of my mother that continues to pray for me as a person of faith. Unwavering faith and perseverance has brought me thus far
1: and you defy the odds. That's what I love about, even though the odds were against you, you defied them and irrespective of the cards you were dealt, you decided that's not how I'm gonna play them.
0: You gotta feel against all odds. That's my story
1: and i can attest to uh, this you know living in the slums of nigeria in lagos specifically uh, weren't too far apart and uh, we had an office there and it's just unbelievable how you were able to come out of that i mean i've witnessed it firsthand and i can say it is a absolute miracle that you've made it to where you are today and i'm just blessed that i get to know you and that we can now share your story with those that, I know uh, my Nigerians are gonna be listening to this, that specifically live in the mainland. So not the, not the island that are gonna be saying, wow, like I can't wait to meet, meet you in person. Um, so I'm hoping for that one day. I think it's
0: important to also try and to feel. It speaks to your character also. You came to Nigeria, not knowing anyone, lived in one of the roughest parts of the town. And guess where you ended up at the end of the day? You're hanging out with very influential people. Even more, the vice president of the country, right? That's not odds. You can calculate that. You can make that up. It is faith that gets you there. Mm. It is the idea that I don't know where I'm going to end up, but I believe that what is in me is greater than what the challenge is out there. And I'm going to make it regardless of what situation is thrown at me. You exemplify some of those characteristic, and you should definitely applaud yourself for everything you've done and continue to do to make the world a more perfect place.
1: Thanks, Abby. That means a lot to me. And before we touch on Samir's, I wanted to ask you, you know, can you walk me through that moment when you did actually leave and get out of, of Lagos and maybe knowing what you know now, what's been your biggest lesson during your journey that maybe you wish you learned earlier? Maybe you wish you learned, you had learned from
0: sooner right um when i think about my journey um i've always had something in me that i always sound a little crazy right i I remember when i was precisely the age of 14 and i dreamt it was a it was an afternoon siesta or in america you call it a nap um and i woke up and i told my mother hey mom i dreamt i was giving advice to an american president and my mom was like have you been smoking? You're my <laughs> only on. Like, I hope this is not the case. And I'm like, mom, that's my dream, right? A couple years later, in 2014, I was working at the Clinton Global Initiative, having casual conversations with President Clinton. So I think to your question about looking back, I'll try as much as possible not to leave my life with regrets, right? But when I think about leaving Nigeria something i've always brought with me is my experiences the companies samia and i have founded a consulting business or clean water for everyone or not having enough data on the african continent there's always a pain there's always a particular passion there's always a particular burning fire inside of me that will keep me going every day because there will be tough times right when samia and i started this business right we did not have capital We didn't have connections in Silicon Valley, but one thing we had was that grit and the passion for what we stood for, which is regardless of where you come from, your financial identity shouldn't determine what that is. So when I was leaving, that's something I had with me. Regardless of the fact that we didn't have money, right? we didn't have the means, we didn't have the connection, but it's just that idea like, what do you stand for at the end of the day? And what we stood for and what continues to burn is the facts of inequality. And in this case, financial inequality I and mean, it's something we keep fighting for and something we're dedicating the rest of our lives to.
1: Beautifully said. I feel like we need to make you the vice president of Nigeria now.
0: <laughs> Why not the <laughs> president?
1: And the president.
2: Give it, give it a few months. So give it My few chairman.
1: <laughs> Samir, what about you? Thanks for sharing, Abby. And Samir, what about you? Uh, Taking us back to the moment that you felt like was the single most important personal attribute that got you to where you are today?
2: Yeah, Phil, that's a great question. And it's funny because, you know, I had all the time that Abby was speaking to think of a great answer and it's still a very difficult one to answer. But if I were to triangulate it into one thing, I would say it's the willingness to try. Uh, I think there have been a lot of times where you have you know, narratives, whether from your family, whether from society that tell you what you can and can't do. And I was never willing to kind of subscribe to those. And, you know, oftentimes the best opportunities in my life have been the ones where I just took the chance. I was just willing to try, whether it was just willing to start transformation with this girl who I met my freshman year of college, you know, whether it was to join a tech company when, you know, I had no business joining a tech company whether it was to take a leap of faith when, you know, Abby and I met to build something great together. And it's that willingness to like take a chance without all the data, without all the answers, but just to like try. That's kept me kind of moving and growing over time. And if I had to say anything else, it would just be treating people right. You know, investing in people has never let me down and giving people the benefit of the doubt, giving them a chance has brought me much, much more than it's ever been uh than i could have ever expected
1: that's great advice actually because some people just end up in analysis paralysis they want everything to be perfect they're planning 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 and they never actually execute or try it out and you took a different approach said let me try a few things see what i like what i don't like if it's working i'll double down on it if it's not working i'll pivot or eliminate it and you Sometimes don't learn that unless you put yourself out there, meet people and try and experiment. And I love the iterative design thinking approach, like just make micro iterations and keep trying and trying and and making adjustments as you go through your journey of life and thinking about your journey of life. What's been your biggest lesson during your journey that maybe you wish you had learned sooner?
2: Well, I was going to say, Phil, the one thing, uh, the one thing that I wanted to say is if I had looked at the data and the odds, I never would have gotten started. You know, you look at the number of people that look like Abby and I, that have built successful companies or raised capital, it's like a decimal. So, you know, looking at the numbers does not do either of us any favors. Uh, if I had to, you know, pick a lesson that I've learned that has been really, I think meaningful is nothing worth doing is worth doing alone. And I think the easiest place to point to that is in, you know, building a SUSU with Abby, right? Where, you know, this journey, all the ups and downs wouldn't have been worth anything if I was doing it by myself. You know, it's the people you meet, it's the people you go on the journey with. It's the people that you get to build and grow and learn with and from that make it all worth it, no matter whether it's successful or a failure.
1: Beautifully said. And it's like that old adage, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. And you guys are exemplifying that and the epitome of that uh, with your work husband relationship. (laughs) You're you're setting a whole new meaning to the word work husband. That should be the new hashtag for the co-CEOs here. And speaking of co-CEOs, I mean, how are you guys managing that? For those that are listening, that are wondering, you know, I thought about being a co-CEO or our board member recommended against it. Our family recommended against it. How do you guys manage that? What advice do you give To those that are thinking about being co CEOs?
0: That's a great question, Phil. When we started our journey, one thing Samir and I agreed on was you know, together we're stronger, but alone, you know, we're not going to go that far. And the fundamental premise of what Isusu actually stands for, the meaning of our name is woven in a collective. So why not essentially emulate what we stand for as people? So when we started the company, some investors actually hung up the phone on us and say, we're not going to invest in this. This is not going to work. And you don't know what you're doing. You can't do separation of duties. But when we think about innovative ideas, we're a little bit crazy when we think about things, right? You know, when, you know, Ford was thinking about creating the next car, people were like, are you crazy? Like, we're just going to have horses going around the streets. When the Wright brothers were thinking about the airplane, people were like, this can't work. And now people are trying to go to Mars, right? What we need to do is have boundless optimism. And that's what Samir and I have. It's really broken down into three things we care about as leaders. Number one, the egoless leadership. You need to try as much as possible to understand that Samir, if you say something that rubs me off the wrong way, it's coming from a place of good, right? That is better for the company. And not think about there's anything malicious about it. So just being egoless and checking your ego at the door is really, really important. Else you won't get anything done. Number two is having and really practicing the idea that two is better than one. The struggles we've gone through as entrepreneurs, as business people, and as leaders, and as minority leaders in America is hard. There's no other two ways to look at it if we're shouldering the burden of making decisions alone we can't go far especially with the odds against us but during the tough times especially i remember last year when funders turned their back against us and we had to rebuild we looked at each other and we said look regardless of what happens we're not going anywhere we're going to die trying the way we the analogy we use is. We're driving or sailing to an island. We brought a old ship. We are parking the ship here, and we bunt it up. We have to build a new one to go back to the promised land. That's the way we think about this. It is that fundamental premise of together we're greater. That's what has brought us to for, and that's what continues to propel us forward.
1: If you want to take the island, you got to sink the ships. And you guys <sighs> did it. You so, it. But what about those that would argue, hey, you know, you guys have different roles right abby has different strengths that might be samir's weaknesses and vice versa samir you might have strengths that are abby's weaknesses how do you differentiate roles between you
2: yeah phil that's a that's a great question and i think something to point out is that co-ceoship doesn't mean that we do the exact same thing all the time right there's many things that abby is significantly better than i am at And we need to recognize that and like focus on those opportunities. Right? So the way that we think about it though, is two perspectives or two points of views is better for making comprehensive decisions, right? Because we, as humans, we have emotions, we get rash, we get angry, we get sad, you know, and we might make something. And then like, let's say I'm really frustrated about something. I'm going to make a decision. Abby can be like, Hey, have you thought about this? Should Mm. we take a step back and reconsider this? Right? So it's not so much that we're literally doing the same activity all the time, which is quite inefficient. It's that we make decisions together. We think through problems together. We bounce ideas off each other and let's face it, building a company is fricking hard. And when shit hits the fan, you need someone there to laugh with, to cry with, to go through the ups and downs with, and that's where it really pays off. So in practicality, you know, Abby and I both love sales, but we focus on different clients at the same time. It's not like we're both leading the same exact calls or writing the same exact emails. We divide our responsibilities accordingly, but when we have important decisions to make, or we have ideas, we run them by each other and make those decisions collectively. And the reason that really works, I think I wanna double click on what Abby said, is that Abby is the person I trust the most. If Abby says something, there's not 1% or iota in my body that thinks that this is meant to do something bad for the company or for me. I have unequivocally no doubt that it's with the best of intentions in mind. So that means that Abby can tell me that an idea I have is stupid and I don't care. I know that it's with the best of intentions and Mm -hmm. that I need to take a step back, reevaluate, and take the next step forward, and I love that's that you, it
1: works. I love that you focus on intentions, not on behavior, because the behavior might look a certain way if you frame it a certain way, you frame it coming from a certain perspective, but if you look at the intentions behind it, it's coming from a loving place, it's coming from a good place. You guys have been through so much together, but what about those that might say, well, that sounds great. Uh, I don't know you guys, but you guys seem to work well together. What happens if there's a difficult decision that you disagree on or, you're not coming to an agreement on how do you, cause you know, as they recommend, you should always have an odd number of people on your board to make sure that there's a majority that always wins. Well, with you two, there's not a majority. So what happens if you both agree to disagree?
0: It's a great question. And I think to really talk about, you know, the first perspective on the idea of two, when I think about great companies like CPG, very well established company, right, you know, great investors, they have co-CEOs. You think about, you know, Bridgewater, one of the successful edge funds of all time, the co-CEO structure. You think about the most highest performing, talk less, does a lot of work and produces quality. You think about Robinhood, they have a co-CEO structure. You think about minorities such as us, you think about area investment based in Chicago, right? They have a co-CEO structure. So there's precedent that talks about successful companies and what that could um, do. In our case, right, we're still a young company, we have a board of advisors, but when it comes to tough decision, we have a pragmatic CFO, Rob Enning, that's fundamentally different from both of us, a numbers guy, one of the smartest human beings we know from an educational standpoint, Harvard educator and all the accolades you can think about it, that comes and look at the facts and say, guys, this is where we think we should go right so when you think about us right we present our case as a company everyone presents their case and we argue over it we go back and forth and the best ideas win and once a decision is made you know what we say i trust the judgment and everyone air moves forward with the decision and if it works great we all win if he fails we fail together there's no Mm -hmm. finger pointing in our in our way of doing business at isusu but that is what it takes because what it comes down to is would do you want to be in the foxhole with you when things get tough, right? JFK said victory has a thousand fathers, but defeat has zero. In our case, that's the fundamental question. Would you want to be in the doghouse with you? Would you want to fight with you? In our perspective, two is better than one. You might have a jury in our case, like Robert Enning, that would look at the facts and help us gain and reach a reasonable conclusion. But we fundamentally believe two heads All is better than one yeah
1: that's a great point you go into the doghouse together you battle it out whoever is more convincing of why this idea should win it's like ray dalio's point of idea meritocracy you let the best idea emerge to the top irrespective of who it's coming from you got it you got it perfect so when i think about you guys i know you like to hustle i know entrepreneurs like to hustle and sometimes we need to do that in order to get our startup to where it is now And I love stories of entrepreneurs doing something scrappy to hustle. What's something scrappy you did to hustle that maybe you couldn't have revealed when you first started out, but now that you're further along, you're funded back and and backed, what would you reveal now that maybe you couldn't have revealed
2: before? Oh boy, Phil, this is tough because there's too many things (laughs) to uh, really choose from, Um, whether that you know, when we started out, Abby and I were literally the only service people at this entire organization and all our clients would be like, wow, you guys have like the most amazing customer support. You respond to everything at all hours of the night. And we were just like, yeah, we're so passionate. We're super enthused, but don't worry. We have 30 employees at the company (laughs) to take things on. Right. And like all of those little like things that we did to sell deals. Um, One personal example I'll share is uh, you know, when Abby and I quit our jobs, we had a little bit of cash, but really we just had a ton of debt. And so, you know, I was couch surfing for a few months, got super tired of couch surfing because you just need your own space and wanted to have somewhere to live and ended up getting a real estate license to figure out how to do an Airbnb hack. And so I ended up renting a two bedroom apartment living in a room that was literally by like, literally like, I don't know, like 10 feet, right? Not even. And, airbnb being out my apartment 24-7 to cover rent, utilities, health insurance, all those things. Because Abby and I didn't make a paycheck for over two years. And it was ridiculous. We'd be like selling deals and I'd be like installing light bulbs at like 2 (laughs) a.m. It was just the craziest time ever.
1: You got to do it to hustle. I mean, there's some amazing stories out there like the Airbnb guys that uh, created the Obama O cereal and Captain McCain cereal. So they raised 25,000 for their startup, which was completely different than Airbnb's uh, results. So um, thanks for sharing that, Samir. What about you, Abby? Is there something scrappy you did to Hustle that uh, you want to share?
0: Yeah, you know, I think one I would share, Samir talks about a lot of the things we did, you know, at Asusu. One that really worked uh, was Airline Points. Um, you know, when I left <laughs> consulting, I had a crap ton of airline points. We didn't have money to travel anywhere. So just used United, you know, did a a whole bunch of points arbitrage to, uh, you know, get us around. But one I really reflect on, I think it was sort of when I enjoyed entrepreneurship, right, was I was in high school and I, you know, I grew up very poor. I was going to school with very rich kids, right? So they wanted, you know, Game Boy cartridges, PlayStation 2 CDs, and all this stuff. Majority of them were in the boarding house. I was in boarding house for a bit, but then it became a day student. So I used to go to, you know, one of the biggest markets in Nigeria called Alaba, right? And then I went there, I would buy a PlayStation CD, right? For, it can be like Street Fighter or Tekken 3, uh, buy a a really good one, um, and then... They sell it very cheap there. So they sell it like, you know, equivalent to maybe like two US dollars back in the day. I'll get it. And then because the guys, I understand the fundamental concepts of demand and supply. The guys wanted this games, so they smuggled it into the DOM and they wanted to play. I'll sell it as high as $25. And they will pay because I understand in economics about the fundamentals of willingness to pay. I would get it for $2, but because they cannot leave the property, I knew what it meant to them. So we we'll sell Game Boy Advance cartridges, we sell so PlayStation cartridges. My business grew into selling Snickers. My sister was in America at that point. She sent American Snickers. I got the reputation of the American importer. And then, I'll <laughs> you know, a Snickers bag that's like maybe like $5 in the United States. I'll sell two for five bucks. And ever since then, I, and then like got to a point where I was making more money than my mother working at the Nigerian Postal Services. I'm like, what the point is, what, what, what's the point of this? Don't give me money to go to school anymore. I'll take care of myself. But that was one of the droplets of entrepreneurship of saying, look, my mother is getting paid. She's way older than I am. And I could just sit here and understand demand and supply and value creation. And this is how entrepreneurship works and make a whole bunch of money. On arbitrage, and by the way, some of that cash is all I paid for my essays to come to America.
1: That's a hustle, right? That reminds me of, of something similar I did, Abby. We, I empathize with you. In middle school, I, in elementary school, Pokemon cards. Oh, so,
0: Pokemon! That, <laughs> Which that one? That was the big hey. thing, thing the here. Ruby and Sapphire. Which one? I used to sell those too. <laughs>
1: okay, so you're gonna like this story that I didn't really play Pokemon cards, but I would buy them because I knew how many kids loved Pokemon cards. And it was a huge craze here in the US. So I would get my uh, baseball card binders and I would have these binders and I would take out all the baseball cards and put the Pokemon cards. So I had these huge binders and I would come to school and I'd bring the binder and I became like the, you know, the attention grabber and everybody's huddled around me like, oh, Phil's got the blastoise, Phil's got the Charizard. (laughs) And I remember I sold a Charizard for 50 dollars and i was like i have made it mom you're not gonna have to work again like life is set we are good to go uh, and <laughs> so that's how i made my money and you know back then what you spend it on is like candy bars <laughs> I, like i could buy my own sandwich today so that was also. and then yeah,
0: in nigeria at that point as a kid the margins are so crazy you're like you know, it's not a lot of money in the grand scheme of things, but that's where the idea of entrepreneurship starts getting planted. You're like, look, what if I do this thing a million times? And you do the math, you're like, whoa, that's the seed of entrepreneurship.
1: To you, I thought $50 was like, we are set for life, mom. You're never going to have to work again. This is it. And I remember, like, my first business was a lemonade stand, the typical, I would go, you know, milk the soccer moms next to the soccer fields, <laughs> and I'd have the lemonade stand all set up and I stole my sister's, my sister had this like puppet show thing. And it was like a chalkboard with like the two curtains and she would do her puppet shows. I stole it, I took it outside and then I would set it up near the soccer fields and I would do my lemonade stand on there. And they're like, oh, this young little boy, you know, selling lemonade. And then I did the Pokemon cards. Then in high school, I became a a bookie. So I was like selling football pools, American football, because back then we didn't have, you know, really, anything online it was a paper printout of all the football games that were going to be that week and i would hand out these papers they would circle their choices hand them back to me and then i kept a, a percentage of the winnings and gave the rest to the whoever won the most uh, accurate uh games and then you know it's amazing what we do growing up to get to where we are today and if you can instill that entrepreneurial mindset at, at an early age there's they're definitely gonna end up solving a problem later on in life. And I love that about, you know, one of the things we did scrappy in Nigeria, actually, you'll appreciate this. We were text messaging. Well, back then, you know, we didn't have the technology set up yet. So what we would do, guys, is we would get our own phones. So we get feature phones, which are just non-smartphones. We'd be sitting in our little hut in in Nigeria. It was a, it was basically like a a safe house for uh, those that are religious, and we would text out all the parents one by one, and it would come from my number, and I would text them out the educational activities each day, and then they would respond to the quiz question. And we didn't have any technology set up, so each quiz response that came in, we needed to record that. So, I'd have my co-founder sitting next to me, and she'd be putting in the numbers in an Excel sheet of what the parent answered with parent A1 answered this. Parent B52 answered this. And everyone was coming in just one by one. And I was texting out each individual parent one by one by one. And then eventually we found a bulk SMS platform, which you probably know about in Nigeria. Like we could pick multiple numbers to send out at once. So it was like, oh my gosh, we've leveled up. And it was like just the next iteration of technology, which all it allowed us to do was send out multiple text messages at once. And then eventually we got a little bit more technology and a little bit more. And it wasn't like we had this full fledged technology output on the, on the front end to the user, it looked like, wow, this is, you know, this is great text messaging <laughs> company. So I <laughs> empathize with you guys.
2: The funny thing is Phil, Abby and I have literally done the exact same thing on train rides where we would just text all of our users and they thought we were like something.com or something like that. They're like, wow, you guys are so on. And it was just like, <laughs> we actually have never collected customer feedback. So we're just going to text all our users and pretend we're an ASUSU, you know, agent or something like that.
0: Um, but um,
2: speaking of stories, Abby, yeah. there's one that we should share, which is uh, Denny's.
0: Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness, man. This, this is... Denny's crazy. Diner? This yes. is crazy. So the one she-
2: and only, Phil, where all great stories are born. <laughs>
1: at one point-, <laughs> at <laughs> one point, you will have a story from Denny's.
0: So Samir and I, were flying from Africa. You know, we, we had an investment in Norway. Um, we're in an accelerator program. So we're flying back to the United States to go take care of one of our big deal with the University of Minnesota. Samir and I flew in. And we went, into, we went to this place called Fargo, North Dakota, in a Northwestern region of, you know, the country. It is far and cold in the Midwest, you know, just a stone throw away from Minnesota. So we had a deal in Crookston. So we went into, we landed and it was just like 4 a.m. and like, no, I think like we were leaving actually. So we had done our deal, did a presentation at the university and then we went into a Dennis, a Dennis diner. And it was like, you know, 12.30 a.m. We got one of the students to drop us off. So our idea was that- Wait, Dennis- wait, wait, wait. We, we got to
2: share that this student was an Isuzu ambassador that we hired. He didn't have a car, but we were technically his employers. So he actually asked his ex-girlfriend to drive us there and had to sit in the car with her. Oh That's how God. we got to Fargo. And the reason we went to Denny's is because we had a 7 a.m. flight and we didn't have the money to pay for a hotel. So we were just going to wait it out in Denny's and chill and then get on the flight to San
0: Francisco. Wow. I'll let Abby continue. Yeah, so we got to this Denny's and then we ordered food. You know, we ate, we were working on our computer. It was 2 a.m. and everyone at the Denny's were the only one there. Right? Sameer went to the bathroom at two 2.30, changing to his pajamas, and <laughs> we're sitting there walking. And then Simeon started dozing off. I started dozing off, and then this person came. And you have to understand, this is Fargo, the Dakota. It was like negative 18 degrees, below zero, right? And like, guys, you can't sleep yet. You got to go. I'm like, oh, no. It's freaking cold out there. We didn't want them to call the cops on us, so we called an Uber, went to the airport, and we walked into the airport. You know those <laughs> chairs at the airport, because <laughs> oh, the yeah. check-in line wasn't open, and then there was this elderly lady there, and our eyes were bloodshot. We looked like zombies. We we're just walking, and she looked at us. She's like. Hey, gentlemen, you can take this seat. <laughs> Thank you. you. You need it more. <laughs> oh, my God. It passed out on the massage chair. <laughs> God. And then we're like, oh, my God, it's time for us to check in. And then the checking pin was open and we went through. And the craziest part, just look at this dichotomy, right? We went from sleeping and getting kicked out of Dennis. And we flew to San Francisco that day. And we were in a building in San Francisco, Fran- San Francisco in our investor's house. Right next to Mark Zuckerberg's house, that was probably close to like 30 million dollars in value. That's the difference. But the question and the lesson for me here is: What are we willing to do? How much are we willing to fight? And how hard do we want success? Mm. That's the lens we had to go. If it means sleeping at dennis and then for us to go show traction to our investors, that is what we are going. Whatever
1: to do. it takes. Whatever it takes. I love that story. That's great. All right, we're gonna have to have our next reunion
2: at denny's <laughs> <laughs> the, no we got to go to denny's at least once a year
1: it's like hey a listen condition. you guys are locked down in new york here in tampa we are 50 percent open you guys need to come visit you're taking too long but yeah, hopefully man. hopefully we in colombia hopefully we'll be seeing each other soon in colombia with our hopefully,
2: trip hopefully i'm excited for colombia yeah. Like All right, once before, a year without time with Phil, you know, that's quintessential to our success and happiness. So, you know, we'll make it happen.
1: Squad is back. I mean, I love you guys so much that I even blended your names in the beginning of the interview. I called <laughs> you Amir. Amir, yeah. Samir and Abby put together Amir. There we go. So we're going to transition now before we finish up to the something I like to call the under 30 seconds round. And Abby, we'll start with you. Yeah. I'm gonna fire off some questions. I want you to answer them as fast as you can with the first thing that comes to mind. Are you ready? Right. Number one, what's the book you've gifted more often than any other book
0: and why? Never Eats Alone by Keith Ferrazzi. Um, that's one of the biggest books for me. It's all about, you know, spreading. And the bow
1: tie. Yeah, oh. great one about networking. Oh. <laughs> the bow tie technique. Yep. Great book about networking, if you want to. And two, what's one of the best investments and one of the worst investments you've ever made and why?
0: Wow, one of the best investments I've ever made um, has got to be in Isuzu. Um, you know, at time, and, you know, everything has essentially flourished. That's the biggest ROI we've essentially had. The worst investments we've made, um, I've made, I think Samir was also in on this is Facebook, Uh, we did a good calculation on Facebook. We bought a call option, um, and then the whole scandal about privacy happened. Our calculations were right. Facebook beat and exceeded the numbers, but then Mark had to talk about the social media and privacy stuff, and then that created our investment. So we lost a a lot of money, and it was at a point where we are highly leveraged. What's the most
1: impactful thing you do in your morning routine? And the most impactful thing you do in your evening routine?
0: Great question. So morning routine: pray, um, person of faith, and then meditation. And um, I have assured it is very, very important. Um, evening routine: um, it's just um, I check my email before I go to bed so I can sleep well and don't have a checklist on my mind. So. It's helpful for me because I think about everything and I have a running checklist in my mind. So email is important for me. Closing
1: out the day. Yeah. Number four, pretend you won the Peter Thiel Fellowship and you were going to get money to start a business instead of go to college. What's the very first thing you do to start your new business?
0: I would find the best co-founder um, in the world, um, hopefully senior, Um, and then you know, I would understand our best to create value for the customers we're going to serve. Last one, what's something you never knew you needed?
1: Love. Hmm, that was a good answer. Look at you, Come <laughs> coming out. <laughs> the work husband relationship comes to rise
0: again. I grew up in a very rough place whereby, you know, my people don't say I love you. Um, love hmm. was secondary, but you need love to thrive. You need love to flourish. And ever since I, you know, found love, um, that has fundamentally changed the way I think about life.
1: Beautiful, Samir, you're up. Oh, the wow. Under 30 seconds round. What is the book you've gifted more often than any other book, and why?
2: Uh, Rich Dad Poor Dad, and that's because that book is a classic. But it shifted my mindset. Uh, growing up in an immigrant family, you hear a lot of things that don't necessarily make sense for how you should spend your money. And, you know, Abby and I, we dream big. And that book helps you change that mindset.
1: That was mine. That was like the gateway drug to self-improvement books. It's Uh, such an
2: easy read, but it's like, oh, this is what my immigrant parents thought that was just wrong about uh, the American system.
1: It basically means instead of work for your money, make your money work for you. And we're taught to just you know, work hard in school, get good grades, get a good job. You'll buy this house. And it's like, well, hold on. That's not for everyone. And maybe you're not set up for that exact path. I love that book. It's, it's a game changer. Number two, what's one of the best investments and one of the worst investments you've ever made and why?
2: Yeah. So I think honestly, like Abby took the answer I would have shared. So I'll choose to uh, a couple other options. One is, uh, investing in the Airbnb. Um, One, because it, Uh, allowed for me to not make money for over a year. But two was, uh, I just got to learn about something that I knew nothing about. Worst investment ever, I would say is, huh, I'd still say Facebook Facebook was rough. That was just so rough. (laughs) I like, like we could just not afford that. And that's just, actually no, we invested in Facebook. And then I had this idea to invest in this company in China called like Quippy or something like that. It was like the Netflix of China. I invested, the stock went up like 50%, like two days later and I was like, this is amazing. And then it just died. Those two, it it was like ripping your heart out. It was terrible.
1: Number three, what's the most impactful thing you do in your morning routine and the most impactful thing you do in your evening routine?
2: Right. So this has changed with COVID, but in the morning, it's a walk, get outside, start my day, have some sort of uh, time. And usually we'll listen to a podcast or just reflect. Uh, and then in the evening it's cook and share a meal with someone I love, which is my partner, Joy.
1: Great answer. Pretend you won the Peter Thiel Fellowship and you were gonna get money to start a business instead of go to college. What's the first thing you would do?
2: All right, honestly, this one, I have the exact same answer as Abby. I was like, who am I doing this with? It better be Abby, because why else are we doing this? <laughs> find,
1: find a partner. Yeah. And last question, what's something you never knew you needed?
2: To believe in myself.
1: Hmm. The need to believe in yourself. Great answer. Well, thank you so much for being here, Abby and Samir. Uh, Before you go, what's next for you? What's the next big milestone or goal or bucket list item you want to achieve?
0: Yeah, I think for us, there are 45 million people in America that do not have a credit score. um, And that's costing them over $3 trillion in interest rates in in total. What we want to do as a company, as as a person is just to make sure you know, people have a good financial identity, um, and then create a company that can not only scale in the United States, but to essentially build a company that, you know, can do good and making crap loads of money while doing it.
1: Beautiful, Samir, do you have?
0: Yeah, a I mean,
2: to be honest, I don't have all can that. Can beat that? To add to that. Um, I think on the professional side, Abby said it all. On the personal, I want to see the world. I want to see every single country in the world if I can.
0: Perfect.
1: I love that. And hopefully we'll be able to travel and check off more countries together. So uh, where do listeners go to connect with you um, directly? And where do listeners go to connect with your company?
0: So directly for me, I am on email, Abby, A-B-B-E-Y at Isusu.org on Instagram, Abby Wems, A B B E Y W E M S, and Isusu, obviously, isusu.org. Um, we're all there and, you know, check us out. We're really excited.
2: Yeah, and on my end, you know, hit, hit me up on email, Samir, S A M I R, at isusu, org and uh, always on LinkedIn, you know, got to plug my favorite platform. Uh, so, LinkedIn.com slash in slash Goyal Samir and we'll be we'll be at one of those places
1: and we'll put those in the show notes please go connect with Abby and Samir thank you guys so much for being here today it's such an absolute pleasure anytime I get to see your face and and hang out with you in the
2: squad thank you Phil this is such a highlight of our of our weeks of our months and we're just grateful to have an amazing person like you in our lives
1: thanks Samir and thank you ladies and gentlemen for being here today Uh, this is Abby and Samir with the Susu who makes it easier for you to build credit, especially using your rent payments. I mean, this is amazing. We learned how to do that. We learned how landlords can get involved. We learned why love is so important and we need it and how to come from zero to a hundred, even if you live in a developing nation or were born in a developing nation. I love you guys and Abby and Samir. Thank you again. It was such a pleasure. And I hope this episode helped you as much as it helped me.
0: Thanks a lot, Phil. Much love. Keep up the good work and let's keep crushing it. Thanks, Phil. Let's
1: do it. Thanks for joining us today. I hope this episode helped you as much as it helped me. Who do you think would benefit from hearing it? You can make an impact on their life by sharing it now. Before you go, I encourage you to tell us your favorite part of the episode in the review section. Now it's time to level up. Level up.